My school didn't have a reputation for progression through to university. The teachers were great, but university seemed like it was unattainable. So I, I feel personally as if I owe a lot to Asimov and to his writings. Just a personal opinion, I, I think we're alone, and I think it's a chilling thought. But if, if you do think that way, it does put an extra responsibility on us not to mess up this planet. Welcome back, everyone, to Selden Crisis for a very special episode and the first featuring a guest since my interview of Nathaniel Goldberg on the philosophy of foundation. Today, we're going to talk about another pretty important element of this awesome series, science. My guest today, Stephen Webb, studied physics at the University of Bristol in England and went on to gain a PhD in theoretical physics from the University of Manchester. He is well known for his work on the Fermi Paradox, and his TED Talk exploring the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence has been viewed more than six million times. Stephen is also a lifelong fan of science fiction. He enjoys science fiction in general and Asimov in particular. He's the proud owner of over 500 of Asimov's books. Few authors can match the good doctor's prolific output, but Stephen is soon to submit his 10th book for publication. Hello, Stephen. It's great to have you on the podcast. It's great to talk to you, Joel. Um, it's getting to the end of another hard year, isn't it? A hard year for all of us. So it's nice to wind down and, and talk about something we both enjoy. Yes, indeed. First, I have to inform our listeners that I did a video call earlier with you and you showed me your bookshelf full of Asimov and I thought I was dreaming. It's a great collection and it shows how deep your appreciation is for his work. Can you describe how you came to love science fiction and Asimov in particular? Yeah, I, I do have a large collection of Asimoviana on display, uh, much to my long-suffering wife's dismay, I have to add. Uh, it takes up quite a bit of space uh, because I, I own all of the books on Ed Seiler's canonical list of the good doctor's work, uh, apart from the wall charts, uh, history of biology, history of mathematics. And they aren't really books. Uh, I guess teachers will have pinned them to classroom walls and then taken them down when they got tattered. So I doubt I'll be able to find them now. But if any of your listeners do have spares they'd like to sell. I'm, I'm in the market. But getting back to your question, um, I discovered Asimov books in the public library as a kid, and his works have had a huge influence on me. Um, I, I grew up in a science fictional time, yeah? Mm -hmm. Astronauts on the Apollo program were reaching for the moon. I mean, how science fictional was that? Yeah. Um, a lot of stuff on TV was science fiction. A lot of movies were science fiction. So the stuff I wanted to read was science fiction. And I remember loving uh, the Danny Dunn books by Ray Brashkin and Jay Williams and the, the Chris Godfrey books by Hugh Walters. I, I can't remember the first Asimov book I read, but it was probably one of his nonfiction books for children. Uh, my, my hometown had a great public library back then, and I noticed Asimov's name popping up whenever I visited it. Uh, it's, it's a quirky name. Uh, I think I originally pronounced it as Asminov, 
Uh, and I eventually found his science fiction and, and, and fell in love with it. Foundation especially, of course, but also the robot series. And great short stories like The Last Question, Nightfall and The Dead Past. Uh, tremendous standalone novels like The End of Eternity. Uh, and, and Martin Rees, Lord Rees, our astronomer royal, he likes to say that you can learn more from first-rate science fiction than you can from third-rate science. And I, I learned a that, lot. That. Yeah, it, it's a wonderful quote, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And I learned a lot from, from Asimov's science fiction. Uh, and, and if you liked Asimov, then you tended to like Clark and Heinlein. I'm, I'm sure that's the case for you, Joel. Yes, and indeed. Yes, indeed, very much. Um, and, and, and I did like those authors too, but there's something about... Asimov's voice in particular, I think it, it is cool and it is rational and it is uh, considered and it really appealed to me uh, above those other writers. And then I fell in love with all, all the nonfiction he poured out, you know, the monthly science columns in um, fantasy and science fiction magazine, the science books, the history books, and I got an education from him and, and I'm really grateful for that because my family had no history of higher education. My, my school didn't have a reputation for progression through to university. The teachers were great, but university seemed like it was unattainable. So I, I feel personally as if I owe a lot to Asimov and to his writings. That, that's so impressive. I, I um, had the same experience when I was not, not uh, the same family experience with higher education, but I had this experience where if I had trouble with a subject, I would often wonder, did Asimov write about this? I'd love to hear this from Asimov because he'd teach it to me well. And I would often find, yes, indeed. And I'd go find the book that he wrote on that subject and read it. And that really helped me. So same thing. Yeah. He, he had a very, very cool, logical approach to, to everything he wrote. It's very often uh, an historical approach. Um, and, and you've got a, a very thorough understanding and grounding, I think, of well, pretty much everything, because he, he wrote on pretty much everything, didn't he? But mm -hmm. everything he wrote, um, I, I think the Foundation series means the most to me. And it was that humans-only galaxy, that mix of ordinary, everyday people, you know, characters like Onan Barr, which you, you, you've described in previous episodes of your podcast, and Arcadie Durrell, I, I presume she'll be coming up. You know, they're living their lives against this backdrop of the vast, distant future, galaxy-spanning civilization. And it just resonated with me, and it, I think it seems to have done with countless other people. Yeah. Uh, one of the footnotes to your book on the Fermi Paradox, Where is Everybody?, uh, says that Asimov created a galaxy without aliens for foundation as a reaction against being told by his publisher, the great John Campbell, not to write any stories where the aliens win against humans. Is that right? Yeah, I, I think it, it wasn't perhaps as explicit as that, but John Campbell had certain views that um, certainly nowadays we would regard as, as problematic um, views to do with with race, mm. and um, I, I think his Campbell's attitude was that you know, the plucky human spirits would win out against anything because 
we're the best, aren't we? And Asimov, I think, thought that was was just nonsense. If you come across an alien species that has better technology, the alien species with better technology is going to win out if there's ever any any war, any conflict, any battle. So yeah. to, to, to get rid of that um, battle or, or conflict with Campbell, um, you know, the logical thing was just to remove um, the, the possibility of meeting aliens. And so by probably just default, he, he ended up with this idea of a, of a humans-only uh, galaxy. Yeah, uh, so that makes me wonder um, what you think about the likelihood of humans eventually filling the entire galaxy, aliens or not, and establishing a galactic empire the way Asimov described it. So I think the first thing to say is Asimov wasn't trying to predict the future. It's not something that science fiction writers need to do in general. You know, they're not in the business of predicting the future. And that's not what he was trying to do in Foundation. He wasn't trying to provide a roadmap for humanity to follow. He was just a a young man, surprisingly young man, trying to sell some stories to John Campbell. And and Asimov actually tired of writing those Foundation stories really rather quickly. And, And I think, as you pointed out in an earlier episode, he had to be cajoled by Campbell into continuing to write um, the stories. So we shouldn't look upon the books as some sort of prognostication. Okay, It's just a story. Mm-hmm. But it is a really interesting question you raise. So suppose for the moment there aren't any aliens. The question, you know, would humans be able to create that galaxy-spanning empire? And I think to discuss the question sensibly, you know, we have to agree on two things. First, we have to agree to allow a place for imagination when it comes to technology. We have to be imaginative. And scientists are sometimes suspicious of that because the results can sound like fantasy. But Mm -hmm. the technology of 100 years from now or 1,000 years or 10,000 years will be incredibly powerful if we survive. And and just think what's happened in terms of technology in the eight decades or so since Asimov wrote the psychohistorians. We, each of us, carry around a device, a a mobile phone. Um, I think it's a cell phone, the the term in America, isn't it? It, It's a device that has a functionality Harry Seldon would kill for. The idea you have a single device in your pocket that can give you directions, it can play music for you, it can serve up your favourite movies to watch or books to read, it can provide you with a camera, it gives instant personalised news, and on and on and on and on. Back then, that would have seemed... You know, much more magical technology than a flying carpet or whatever. So we have to allow for huge technological development over these long timescales. So I think that's the first thing. Second, though, we have to agree that whatever we imagine follows the laws of physics as we currently understand them. We know that our understanding of physics is incomplete, but it is also pretty impressive you know, it allows us to construct and operate those mobile phones, for example. And if we simply disregard the laws of physics, then it's like playing tennis with the net down. You know, anything is allowed. And if anything is allowed, yeah. nothing makes any sense. So that constrains what we are allowed to imagine. Well, that second point 
to my mind, tends to rule out the sort of civilization, single galaxy spanning empire described in foundation. The problem is that the universe contains a local speed limit, the speed of light. You can't transmit information faster than the speed of light, and that's the killer. Because although light travels quickly, the galaxy is, is big. So suppose you have the Emperor you know, sitting on Trantor, which is at the galactic centre. And we are sitting on, say, an Acrian, which let's suppose is close to us here on Earth. So the Emperor sends out a message, you know, I, I don't know, something like, How fair my loyal and faithful subjects on the planet of an Acrian. That question takes 25,000 years to reach Anacreon. Then the local imperial officer answers, things aren't too good, your highness. And that answer takes 25,000 years to reach Cleon. The emperor says, would you like me to send reinforcements? Another 25,000 years. Yes, please, another 25,000 years. So it's 100,000 years before the troops even set off. For yeah, <laughs> I can see, so the, you can't, can see the problem. You, you can't maintain that central control. Yeah, I was just thinking about um, a comment I saw in another uh, on a YouTube about uh, galactic empires recently. Somebody said, uh, I think that was raised in the in the YouTube video, and one of the commenters said, "But isn't this like uh, the British Empire when they ruled the world, and it would take weeks and weeks, if not months?" for communication to go each way and you would have the same kind of issues but that's not 50,000 years I I think that's the difference isn't it that um so empires on earth whether it was Rome um what needing to put down a, a rebellion say in the north of England it would take weeks to get there to 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 quell that rebellion Weeks as a fraction of the human lifespan is okay. A hundred thousand years—that's a long, long time. On the in, in terms of the lifespan of a of a species, not just individuals. So, I personally, I, I don't see how you can maintain that that control of a central um, trantor, if you like, running the business of the galaxy. If you have that, well, I know a way you could do it. Uh-huh. Hyperspace jumps. <laughs> Is that yeah. even possible? Is there any way you could do that? Yeah. Well, that, that that's that's how Asimov and um, science fiction writers in general don't they? That, that's how they get around the problem. Um, have a hyperspace jump, and I'm, I'm, I'm told, and I don't, I don't think it's apocryphal, but at a science fiction convention. Uh, science fiction writer was asked how the hyperspace jump works and the answer was it works very well thank you and it does work well for a science fiction story but that's all it's a story and and Asimov he he was really good at giving these simple names to difficult concepts not trying to explain the nuts and the bolts just allowing the reader's imagination to to take over, make of it whatever they want, and then getting on with the story. Yeah. And sometimes he gave um, science fictional names to, to everyday items just to give that sheen of strangeness, if you like. So, so you have men, it's always men, 
smoking cigars while they talk politics around a conference table, which now seems incredibly old fashioned. Mm-hmm. Instead of throwing the stubs into an ashtray, which is what they would do, they drop them in a disruptor. And mm-hmm. the disruptor, it's just a throwaway word. No nuts or bolts given or needed. And he did that in lots of his novels throughout Foundation. And ultimately, I think hyperspace jump is just that. It's just words. And it enables the plot to move forward. I can think of two serious suggestions for faster than light travel based on physics as we currently understand it, but just two. Um, so, so we have two deep fundamental pillars of, of physics, okay? So it's general relativity and quantum theory. And general relativity is our theory of, of gravity. It gives us our best understanding of the universe on a large scale. Quantum physics describes the universe on small distance scales. Well, general relativity pictures space-time as a, a sort of fabric, and that fabric can be distorted by the presence of mass and energy, and movement through that distortion is what we experience as gravity. So you can imagine maybe punching a hole in the fabric at one point and stitching it together at some other point, and then you'd have a hole through which you might be able to travel, which would take you from one point to another. And I guess that might class as a hyperspace jump. Another option is to have a spacecraft and you warp space in a particular way just in front of the craft and you warp it in a particular way just behind the craft and you can get a ripple in space that can move arbitrarily quickly. In the spacecraft itself, you wouldn't experience anything different. You still couldn't move faster than light, for example. But the whole system, warped space at the front, flat space in the middle, warped space at the back, that moves as fast as you want. The trouble is, these suggestions require something called exotic matter. And it's it's really not clear. Dilithium crystals. I'm, I'm sorry, I missed that, Joel. Dilithium crystals is what they use exactly. on, on yes. Star Trek. Yeah. Exactly. It, it's the dilithium crystals. It's Again, it's just words. And it, it's really not clear that those crystals or that exotic matter can exist in our universe. So building that warp drive isn't just a matter of engineering. Okay, you, you, It's not just imagination. There may be fundamental reasons why you just can't do it. The other option that people sometimes raise is in quantum theory, which it allows for something called entanglement. So if you bring two particles close together, then the properties of the particles can become intimately linked or entangled. And if you send one of them away, separate them as by as large a distance as you wish, uh, it, it turns out that measurements made on the particle here that you get, they affect what can be measured on the particle over there. And it's as if some instantaneous signal flashes between them and, and one particle saying, I've just been measured to have this property, so you better make sure you have that property when you get measured. Well, entanglement certainly exists. It's a property of quantum physics. It seems weird, but it doesn't allow you to send a signal, unfortunately. It, it's a strange observation about how the world works and it's not intuitive and it seems quite strange and spooky 
but it doesn't give us a method of sending information faster mm -hmm. than light. So, so the only glimmer of hope I can see for having this this empire where Trantol really can um, keep an eye on everything is, is, is to accept that general relativity and quantum physics, we know, don't work well together. So, so we know that our understanding is incomplete. So maybe if we had a theory of, of quantum gravity, we might figure out some clever way of making a jump through hyperspace. But as things stand, I think we are just stuck with that slower than light trek to the stars, which I think rules out foundation as we know and love it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a little disappointing, uh, but um, I wanted to mention in um, the Apple TV series, I don't know if you've uh, seen that yet, but there's a, um, uh, they have these uh, warp ships that have the, that spin up what looks like a black hole from nothing, uh, just using magnets and big rotating rings. Uh, I wondered if, if you've seen that, does that seem at all plausible as a way to generate a black hole? It seems like that would like not be something you could really do, but I would love to know that that was something reasonable. It, it, it would be great. Um, and, and, and I have seen it and, and you know, visually it looks, it looks stunning. Um, so those jump ships, my interpretation of what I saw on, on screen, they're, they're using that first type of idea that I mentioned, the idea that you can somehow warp space in a way that permits travel. And if you are going to warp space in that way, then something like a black hole is probably going to be necessary because the singularity of, of a black hole where, where the gravitational force, according to our theories, becomes infinite that seems to be a place where the fabric of space-time gets punctured. Maybe. We just don't know what goes on there. Now, if you're a science fiction writer or, or the producer of a science fiction television series and you need some faster-than-light craft in order to facilitate the plot, then I, I think the best you can do in terms of known science is to use something like a jump drive, something like... Um, was pictured in, in, in Foundation on television. And I'd certainly cut those people some slack if they use that device. And, and you could argue that in the absence of a theory of quantum gravity, it's not unreasonable to say a jump drive might be possible. But we really don't know how to, to build one, and I wouldn't put any money on it being possible. So we're left with... Um... Uh, some fraction of the speed of light uh, is the most reasonable expectation. Uh, in that case, um, would there be any way that you could fill the whole galaxy with a civilization of humans? Yeah, I think you can. I, I, I think you can. I don't think that speed limit actually rules out um, spreading out through the galaxy. You know, if we allow our imagination to roam, we can think of lots of ways that a civilization could spread throughout the galaxy. So, for example, um, I can give you an, an example that's appeared in the, the scientific literature. You can imagine creating what, what's called a Dyson swarm around the sun. So maybe you dismantle Mercury and, and put lots and lots of little orbiting um, rocks around the sun. And then you have essentially the, the sun's entire power 
output to play with. That gives you a lot of power. You, you send out self-replicating probes to the nearest stars. They're traveling fast, but nevertheless, at sublight speeds, no physics is being broken. And you program them to do the same thing when they reach that star system. They create a Dyson swarm. They send out probes and so on, rinse, repeat. Mm. Maybe while they're there, they terraform a planet in the habitable zone for later colonization by biological beings or whatever it is that we evolve into. And the civilization doing that could spread throughout the galaxy really, really quickly. It would take an achingly long time on the timescale of individual beings, yes, but it would be very, very quick on a geological timescale or a cosmic timescale. It wouldn't be the empire that we see in Foundation, at least as I understand it, because I don't see how you maintain that central power structure. Speed of light doesn't allow that. But it, it might would be even be... more interesting with uh, a lot of differences between the different uh, pockets of humanity uh, here and there. In, 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 indeed, uh, I, we can assume that evolution would still take place in all of these dif di these different um, places, and it w would actually perhaps be a much more interesting um, place. But it wouldn't be the the the, 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 the galaxy of the foundation. Um, but I think that then leads to an interesting question. Um, you know, why don't we see any evidence of that attempt at reaching out into the galaxy? If we think we might be able to do that, and we think we might want to do that, I mean, that's a different question. Um, but why, are, why don't we see other species trying to do that out in the, out in the galaxy? Well, from your book, I learned that um, Fermi asked that question. And um, back at Los Alamos, he and a bunch of other people were having lunch one day, and he just said, uh, where is everybody, out of the blue? And uh, being uh, nuclear physicists and, like, really smart guys, uh, uh, nobody looked around to see who he was talking about. They all seemed to understand immediately what he meant. Uh, where is everybody, meaning the aliens? Because so, I guess they must have been thinking about it, too. I mean, that's right. I mean, Fermi had this reputation of, of being able to calculate things in his head incredibly quickly. He, he was a very, very bright guy and a great physicist. And when he and those colleagues were having that conversation about the possibility of extraterrestrial intelligence, I think they knew immediately that he'd asked a, a, a profound question. And in, incidentally, I, I first came across the notion of the Fermi question or the Fermi paradox, as it's often called, in Asimov's science fiction magazine. So that's yet another way that Asimov has, has influenced me. But because I've thought about that question, where is everybody? I've thought about it a lot, as have lots of people. And, and people have come up with many solutions over the years. And for a majority of people, actually, there isn't a problem. Uh, they point to UFOs or UAPs, as they're often called now unidentified aerial phenomena. And they'd say that you know, aliens are here right now. But those are just, from my vantage point, they're, they're just lights in the sky. You know, it's not evidence for the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence. I think most scientists would say that extraterrestrial intelligence probably exists, but we just haven't detected signs of it yet. 
And Asimov himself um, wrote a book, of course he did, called Extraterrestrial Civilizations. And he concluded that there are 530,000 planets in our galaxy in which a technological civilization is now in being. And personally, I think he got that number wildly wrong. Um, but most astronomers, I think, would agree that there are advanced civiliza civilizations out there, possibly thousands of them. So where is everybody? In, in, indeed, indeed. And, and you know, we, we could spend hours discussing the various answers that people have given. Maybe the answer is what we've already touched on, which is that the galaxy is just too big. And it turns out that civilizations can't disturb the universe in a way that others can detect. But, you know, maybe intelligence is a self-limiting phenomenon. You know, maybe if you if you're a bright creature with opposable thumbs, maybe that's not a good uh, evolutionary strategy, you know, maybe we snuff ourselves out through war or environmental destruction or we create some grand technology and then think, oops, and it's too late. It, it's, it's got We've come uncomfortably close already. It's, we are, aren't we? And, yeah. and, and that, that is a worry, yeah. Or, or maybe everyone's listening, you know, maybe civilizations are too scared of coming to the attention of other civilizations that we think might be more advanced and potentially malevolent. There's lots and lots and lots of possibilities. But there's also the possibility um, that we're alone. It's just us. You know, maybe it's difficult for life to start in the first place. Even if life starts, you know, perhaps that transition from simple unicellular life to more complex life forms is difficult. It took a, a long, long time here on Earth to make that transition. And even if complex life arises you know, on a planet with the sorts of resources you need for technology and one that has a, a, a stable climate that can uh, support evolution over billions of years, you, would that necessarily lead to beings that are intelligent, Technologically, technologically sophisticated, interested in making that trip out to the stars. Personally, and it is just a personal opinion, I, I think we're alone, and I think it's a chilling thought. But if, if you do think that way, it does put an extra responsibility on us not to mess up this planet, because as you just alluded to a moment ago, we're uncomfortably close, aren't we? Yeah, and I, I have a feeling that people's general assumption that there are aliens out there, uh, it seems to be the common idea. And, you know, popular science fiction, television and, you know, movies and everything kind of supports that and drills that into people. So uh, there's a tendency for them to not see it that way and like, you know, oh, yeah, if we if we screw things up, there's at least life out there that's going to continue. And uh, that's not necessarily the case. This could be the only life. So anyway, I, I've can, been a... You, go ahead. Can I just say, Joel, um, I, I think, harking back to what I said right at the start, I think there has been a fascinating interplay between science and science fiction. And I, I think the science fiction that a lot of us um, grew up on has influenced what scientists 
um, think and how they view the universe. And that in turn feeds back into science fiction. And there is this subtle interplay. And it's gone back actually um, to H.G. Wells um, influencing um, scientists. There's this subtle interplay between science fiction and science, which, again, we could probably spend hours talking about. So I'll shut up and let you ask your question. No, it's okay. Um, so anyway, I was just going to say, after all that about the you know the various possibilities, um, I I'm pretty much on your side, thinking that we're alone. And but uh, having been a, a fan of Star Trek and everything, I would love for there to be Kling, Klingons and Romulans and Vulcans out there. But I, I kind of come to the conclusion that if there's any life out there, it's likely to be microbial. Um, and we're not going to have those kind of interactions with them, but who knows? I shouldn't, I should keep an open mind, um, and not get totally closed off to it. But anyway, if we want to get, uh, something like foundation and, uh, we expand, uh, throughout the soul, the, the galaxy eventually, um, let's just assume that things turn out the way Asimov put it in the story and we fill the whole galaxy, um, given that kind of a context uh, how plausible do you think psychohistory is, as it's described in the novels? Well, the, the the social science aspect of this isn't something I'm expert in at all. Um, I think it was a stroke of genius by Asimov, by the way, to think about human interactions statistically in the same way that physicists look at molecular interactions statistically. You know, we don't know what an individual molecule might do but when you have quadrillions of them you know with certainty what's going to happen you know, we have the the laws of thermodynamics and thermodynamics actually was was an obvious inspiration for Asimov um, one of his best ever stories the last question it, it's about thermodynamics and that makes it sound incredibly dull but it is a profound story about what humanity might become and I, I won't give any spoilers but if um, any of your listeners haven't read it you know, please do read it. But that, that idea of, of, of psychohistory, that there might be equations that govern um, the activity of humanity on a large scale, it's, it's inspired you know, at least two people to take up economics and, and use mathematics to try and predict the future and then go on to win the Nobel Prize. So uh, Roger Myerson and, and Paul Krugman, they, they both... Um, explicitly um, stated that foundation was uh, an influence on them. So, so Asimov clearly struck a chord here. Mm. Whether it's possible, though, I, I don't know. I, I don't think economists right now understand how people act in the real world. You know, the mathematics they were using 10, 12 years ago didn't help them understand that financial crash. I, I'd argue that the models they were using made it worse hmm. um, so, so you have economics you have politics you can think of psychohistory in terms of politics maybe um, so Salvador Hardin he said something along the lines of and I'm, I'm, I am paraphrasing I haven't looked the quotes but it's something like I, I wanted to be a psychohistorian but we didn't have the facilities so I went into politics it's the same thing but again if you look at politics over the past few years, certainly in my country, and I don't want to talk about your country, but 
you know, reach your own conclusions. And we have politi- yeah, we have politicians can't predict what's going to happen tonight, let alone yeah. next week or next month. Um, but on, on the other hand, you, you look at the developers of you know, social media platforms, they, they seem to know exactly how people are going to react. They know exactly what to do to get people to keep on pressing those buttons on their platforms. So I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I'd be interested to know what you think, Joel. Well, um, my take is that people tend these days to dismiss it a little too easily. Um, I suspect the way he describes it, Asimov describes it, it probably wouldn't work exactly that way. But as you say, he doesn't describe things too well. And so, um, but the basic idea, I think if the if we had gigantic data sets, then we're getting into this, you know, big data phase now. But if we had like data sets that were quadrillions of people and we could really play with all that information, maybe we could uh, figure out, you know, a probabilistic patterns of what, what was going to happen. And we could assign, you know, a certain, the possibility of certain events, you know, to be very, very high probability. Um, then I think we might be able to make predictions. So it wouldn't be exactly psychohistory, but it might be kind of get, getting close to it. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. If we look at the, the, the mule as an example in the book of uh, an example of, um, Selden's psychohistory failing. Um, I, I don't think it necessarily was a, a failure of psychohistory as much as it was just one of those very low probability events that, you know, he said, you know, by now there's a 95% chance that you're going to be doing such and such. And that 5% is what happened. The mule appeared. Yeah, right? I, I think that's not unreasonable. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, let's switch gears for a minute um, and talk about something else in Asimov's universe, something very important in Asimov's universe, which he left out of foundation at first, but eventually brought back in. And that's robots. Uh, With his robot uh, books, he postulated that they had positronic brains and three inviolable laws of robotics. And I'll read them off here. Uh, The first law is a robot may not harm a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. And the second is a robot must obey the commands of a human being unless doing so would violate the first law. And the third law is a robot must protect its own existence unless doing so would violate the first or second laws. And later he added a zeroth law which says a robot can break any of the other laws if it's in service of protecting humanity as a whole. So are positronic brains remotely possible? And would it be possible to bake in these three laws? Um, I don't think positronic brains are remotely possible. But this was just another of his phrases, um, like hyperspace jump, where I think Asimov left the reader to fill in the gaps. And if you strip away the nuts and bolts and, and look at the fundamental idea he was concerned with here, that humans would develop machines that can act for themselves and interact with people, then I think he was really modern in his thinking. Because the robots before Asimov in, in science fiction, they tended to be clunky machines that turned on their creators. 
And Asimov once said that whenever people invent anything, they invent safeguards. You know, they invented a sword, and then they invented a hilt, so your fingers don't go slithering off when you thrust at someone. And same with robots. You know, however they manifest themselves physically, whether it's positronic brains or silicon or whatever, will want to bake in some safeguards. What those safeguards should be, well, that's, that's the really interesting question, isn't it? And the three laws make sense, but they are ambiguous. And, and that was great for Asimov. As he said, when he wanted an idea for a new robot story, he just had to look at the three laws and look for complications. So a robot shouldn't harm a man. Well, you know, what is man? That thou art mindful of him. If harming one person saves two people from harm, is that okay? Does psychological harm count the same as physical harm? How could a robot understand psychological harm anyway? And isn't engaging with dangerous activity something we need to do occasionally? And I think the best robot story that Asimov didn't write was With Folded Hands by Jack Williamson, which is about robots taking those laws really too seriously hmm. and, and, and on and on and on. Read that one. And, 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 and I don't think we'll see an entity like Daniel Oliver anytime soon. But you mentioned big data and, and advances in machine learning. It means we'll see computers that are really, really powerful and able to, to navigate the world in ways maybe that we don't understand. And I think as a society, what safeguards we need to put in place to handle that technology is something we really, really need to think about. We need philosophers and we need ethicists and computer scientists to think about this. And as a society as a whole, we need to think about it. And we don't have very long, I don't think, to wait. And, and we should be thinking about it now. And th that's why, in some ways, I would have preferred it if Apple had filmed not Foundation, but Caves of Steel and The Naked Sun and the robot models instead. That. It might have helped kickstart that conversation. Yeah, I would love to see with the budget they have what they did with Solaria. Yeah, uh, the world of Caves of Steel. But anyway, what's your reaction to the TV show? What's your verdict? Did they I, I loved, loved the visuals. Um, the certain scenes that were like a Chris Foss painting come to life, you know, that was wonderful. My, my, my problem with it is I'm, I'm just not sure who the, the series was aimed at. You know, there'll be people like me who think it deviated too much from the book. And I understand why you know, the producers of a TV show might need to do that. And, and heaven knows you know, some of the attitudes to women, for example, in the early books needed to be updated. Uh, but for me, and, and I know for others, something was lost in the translation. You know, I liked the actors. I liked some of the additions to the story. I thought they were very clever. It wasn't bad. It was just, I don't know. And I, I was thinking about this last night, and I think one of the reasons I was disappointed was that everyone in the show was, was all so serious and, and so portentous. But the story's actually quite light in parts. As, Asimov was often quite ironic, and that lightness of touch just didn't come across in the show for me. For, for yeah. people who haven't read Foundation and are coming to it fresh, I can imagine it being confusing. And I can say that with proof because my wife, who isn't a science fiction fan, 
she really didn't enjoy it. Uh, yeah, we're on the same page there. My wife is the same way. Uh, but I have to be honest, I'm in that the rare group of uh, people who love the books and also love the show. Um, when it was announced, I remember thinking that it was likely to depart significantly. They were talking about Brother Day, Brother Dawn, Brother Dusk. I don't remember any of these people. What are they talking about? And I thought, okay, so this is not going to be foundation as I read it. And in a way, I was okay with that because I knew foundation as it was written so well that if they had done it exactly like the storyline, it would have been a little too predictable for me. I mean, I would have appreciated the the visuals and everything. But uh, one of the things that I love about Asimov is how he surprises you. He, he often, he loves writing mysteries and, and mm -hmm. revealing things in very stunning fashion, like you yeah. know, as we just discovered with the mule. Um, and th th this is, uh, so, th so they didn't do that. And they, have created so many different wrinkles in the story that, you know, take it away from what we read. Uh, but that sets up a lot of surprises for me and it makes it worth watching as I don't even really see it as maybe it shouldn't be called foundations. Yes. yes. Uh, you know, it's, it's not really the story of foundation. They're using a lot of the same names and, and things, but, um, it's an entertaining show for me, I, and I, I'm kind of just looking at it as an entertaining TV show, and I, I, it's, it's been exhilarating at times, especially those last um, couple episodes. I think. Last two episodes were, were easily the standout episodes for me, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I thought it dragged a little bit in the middle, but uh, towards the end, there was a lot of setting things up, which is inevitable. They, you know, for a story this big, and if they really are going to go eight years with it, um, yes. and I hope they succeed because that that just gives so much opportunity for creativity and for. Uh, I, I love the idea of a story set in this, you know, galaxy-spanning context. It's mm. you know, it's wonderful. Yeah. But uh, let's get back to Foundation as Asimov wrote it for a moment. Um, if we, um, One of the things that struck me when I read it is how people have normal lifetimes of like 80 or so years. Uh, and I always assume that, you know, 20,000 years in the future, if we're not like uploaded and post-biological and just, you know, not even human in the sense we are now, um, if we're human, we're going to have much longer lifespans, but Asimov decided to make uh, lifespans pretty normal. So I wonder why he did that, if you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I, I think it's possible. I think it's probable that biologists and doctors are going to make tremendous strides in the future. For, for example, those uh, nanobots depicted in the TV shows, I suspect they'll be available within decades and, and they'll be able to help maintain health and, and delay aging. We'll have better and better gene therapies and there'll be improvements in medicine that we just haven't even imagined. In terms of the foundation series though, I mean Asimov I think was using the future to ask questions about the past, about the forces of history, about politics, about how we should live today. And an extended human lifespan would presumably lead to, to very different social structures, social attitudes, and so on. 
So I think he was right not to introduce that idea into Foundation because it would have been a very different series of stories. It's the same with various other aspects of Foundation. So I've recently listened to your um, episodes on the mule, for example, and you mentioned Beta and Toran getting married. And in the book, it's emphasised that marriage is an archaic institution, few people bother with it. But Asimov doesn't tell us what's replaced it or what institutions are in place for raising children. And he doesn't tell us because it's not relevant to understanding Selden's plan or the two foundations or the empire. But going back to your question, I think it's also worth saying that increased life expectancy um, that, that we've seen in recent years, it isn't down to an increasing lifespan, basically. It's because of the introduction of basic public health measures, reduction in infant, infant mortality and so on. So I think increasing the human lifespan rather than life expectancy is a problem that biologists still have to solve. Um, but yeah, I, th I think they probably will solve it. And if they do, it'll bring its own problems. But they're problems that Asimov deliberately, I think, chose to to avoid because that's that's not the, the story and, and, and it, it, it wasn't what he was interested in in that particular um, series of stories right he was um he he was studying he, he was taking historical events that he knew about in the past and kind of just uh a thought experiment placing them in the distant future and having things play out in similar I, ways yeah i i think that idea of a thought experiment is is is, is a really good um term and and you, and you don't want too many variables in in any experiment so i think he was deliberately keeping certain things fixed so that he could tweak others. Yeah, let's uh, depart from Asimov for a moment. Um, considering the, the distant history that he created for this story, uh, do you have any other favorites that you know touch on the same or, or are take place in the same kind of uh, world as uh, or you know colossal? Uh, context as what Asimov did with Foundation. Ooh, uh, so, so, so books about distant human history. Um, it's a hard question. And um, if your listeners haven't read it, I, I can recommend The City and the Stars by Arthur Clarke. That, that gives a very different take on the future of humanity, but it's very clever. I don't know if you've read that. I I believe I have, and I I want to get I want to take another look at it to see if to make sure I have. But I read a lot of Clark in my youth, and so much of it is um, I don't remember very well. He he's an, he's another author that um, I think was interested in um, sort of large scale questions rather than the, the, than the, the smaller scale characterization that that lots of science fiction. And, and authors in general. Uh, and he was interested in uh, humans uh, evolving into something different. Uh, in, like indeed. And, and yeah. things like that, yeah. He, he had, considering he was trained as a physicist, he had a, a, a slightly um, more spiritual, if you like, uh, outlook, I think, than, than Asimov. Mm -hmm. But def definitely City in the Stars I could uh, recommend. Um, a Canticle for Leibowitz, Walter Miller. That looks at how history repeats itself. I think that's a haunting story. I've um, got to read that. You, you, uh, did you say you hadn't? 
I haven't read that yet. No. Oh, that, that, that recommended. Um, and and then there are you know, classics like The Time Machine, of course, H.G. Wells, and Asimov's own End of Eternity, which is a very, very different um, novel. But you could argue sets up the, 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 the world of Foundation, ultimately. I, I have to interrupt you for a second. I just found out that there's a Soviet uh, version of The End of Eternity, a, a, a film that's Ooh. with English subtitles that's available on YouTube. And I've been wanting to watch it, but I have not read the book yet. In fact, I haven't, I've read all the robots and um, foundation books, but I've not read the three empire books. And I want to read uh, the end of eternity uh, before seeing this uh, movie. And, and um, I've heard it's really interesting. It, it, it's very clever. It's very different to um, foundation and anything like foundation. Um, it's a time travel novel. But ultimately, as I say, um, you could argue that it sets up the world that we um, we learn about in, in, in Foundation. I won't give any spoilers, but except to say it's it's well worth reading. Um, I mean, very different in style to Asimov. Uh, Hyperion, Dan Simmons, Book of the New Sun, Gene Wolfe. Uh, Three-Body Problem, I read that relatively recently by Lu Chik Chen. Um, it's I very heard good. about that, yeah. It's, um, if you're interested in the Fermi Paradox, he provides a quite chilling um, explanation for it. So three-body problem I can, I can hardly recommend. There's lots I could go on for, for ages, so I'll, I'll, I'll shut up. Okay, I'll just, I'll just talk about some of the ones I've read that maybe you haven't read that have really um, been interesting to me, because I've read a lot of the, the big three, Asimov, Clark, and Heinlein when I was uh, younger. But uh, recently, I just came across uh, a series of, uh, a set of novels all packaged up in one book, because they were fairly short novels, by Robert Sheckley. Mm -hmm. And um, one of them was I had read in my teens and just loved it and still remembered it. It was called Mind Swap. Um, it, it's the premise is uh, somebody. It's a, a time in the distant future when people use uh, mind swapping as a vacation strategy, and you can just like switch minds with somebody on a faraway planet and experience what their life is like. But anyway, he he. Uh, the, the protagonist switches his mind with somebody on Mars and finds out that uh, that body was already claimed by someone else. And so he has a few hours to vacate it. And, or, <laughs> and that sets up a, a just a hilarious chain of events uh, that uh, very imaginative. And I found that all of the novels in the book were on that same level of just brilliant and causing me to laugh riotously throughout. Um, but a, a bit more uh, serious writer that I've, uh, I, I absolutely love is Kim Stanley Robinson. And uh, I've been fortunate to get to know him personally through the Mars Society um, and uh, met him several times. Um, that the Mars trilogy he wrote was just, is still one of my favorite books. I just absolutely love every all three of them. Uh, and I love his vision of humanity as it's uh, expanded throughout the solar system. The very first book he wrote was called A Memory of Whiteness. And it's a uh, 
the solar system is just completely developed out and every little moonlet has its own little, um, they have these, what they call what suns that are kind of a, um, an extension of the sun that's like kind of gets beamed out somehow. Another one of those, uh, uh, magical things that isn't explained very well, but, um, it really sets up a beautiful story. And, uh, his latest book that I just read uh, is all set here on earth. It's called the ministry for the future. And um, I highly recommend it uh, because it addresses this, you know, great crisis we're marching towards with climate change. And it turns out, even though it starts out in a, in horrific fashion uh, with a, a, a terrible heat wave that kills a lot of people, um, it ends up being fairly optimistic and, it pretty much lays out a, a a path we could take to have a somewhat utopian uh, future in another hundred years or so where we've gotten a hold on this. And I think there's not enough of that with uh, things like climate change. It's just kind of assumed that we're, it's a matter of how doomed we are, you know, like are, are we doomed in a, in a, in 10 years or in 50 years or hundred years, either way we're doomed. And, and he, he kind of turns that around and says, no, we could get back on top of this and it's worth it to do so. You know, they really right. would. So I really recommend that to everyone, but I have a, a personal um, curiosity uh, about my podcast. Um, when I started it, I had no idea how to get listeners. Uh, and I have gotten some amazing listeners like yourself. So I'm really curious how you found it. And, um, if you have any favorite episodes from what I've done so far. Okay. B before I answer that, I, I just wanted to say, I agree with you, uh, your estimation of, of Kim Stanley Robinson, a terrific writer. Um, and you, you mentioned um, lighthearted stories just before that with Robert Checkley. Um, he, he can, Kim Stanley Robinson can do lighthearted as well as the serious stuff. And I can recommend Escape from Kathmandu if you want something to cheer you up. Yeah, I know about his sense of humor. I've definitely <laughs> yeah. run into that many times. Um, but about podcasts. So I, I, I got into podcast listening only recently. Um, someone recommended uh, the History of English podcast by Kevin Stroud. And it's about the history of the English language, you know, starting right back with the Proto-Indo-European language of thousands of years ago. And I, and That's I, a really interest of mine too. So I want to check that one out. I think he's on episode hundred and fifty-two oh, no. or something, and um, he, he he's still working his way up to Shakespeare. So it's a it's a long, long um, series, uh, but I heartily recommend it. It's it's very good. Uh, but anyway, I, I downloaded a podcast player to play that, and uh, while I was there, I did a search. As a modern foundation and, and Selden crisis came up, um, so, so it was by chance. Um, my, my favourite episodes have, have been involving the mule, um, but I, I have enjoyed all of them. I have to say, Joel, because they've brought the stories back to life for me in, in a way that the TV show, for example, didn't. Um, so please do continue, and, and once you've gone through the prequels and the sequels. Then there's the robot stories to cover and end of eternity and lots of other stuff to keep you busy. Yeah. Um, 
I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint you on that score. Uh, I would love to be able to do that, to go through all of uh, the robot stories, because I love the robot stories, um, absolutely. Um, but I just not sure I want to you know, be in Asimov's head all my life, the rest of my life. Uh, although it sounds like you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It doesn't sound too terrible. It's a sad um, am. Yes. Right. But somebody actually on Twitter recently mentioned that they, they uh, were tempted to do something like what I've done with the robot series. And I said, oh, please do it because then I don't have to do it and I can do other things. I actually want to write uh, some of my own stuff. I have, I, I don't know if you know, I did a, um, I wrote a rock opera a little while back and it's a science fiction, uh, science fiction myth kind of thing. Uh, it's really interesting idea and almost too out there for a lot of the audience. So I, I'm thinking of getting back to it and, and uh, trying now that I've studied Asimov so well uh, about, you know, how you write entertaining stories, I'm uh, thinking about taking another crack at it, maybe writing a sequel to it or something. Oh, brilliant. Uh, so hoping to get into that. Um, back to the Fermi paradox for a minute. Um, I read the first edition of your book because that was what was available at my library and I have to tell them to get the new one uh, uh, because I heard there's the, the new edition has 75 proposed solutions rather than 50. So I'm very curious about those 25 uh, that I don't know about. Although I have been looking into this through other sources. One of them is uh, uh, an excellent podcast called The End of the World with Josh Clark. Uh, and uh, really well done. And he discusses the Fermi paradox. It's the first episode he does. Uh, and a lot of, then he goes on to talk about all these existential risks for humanity. Um, but in the Fermi paradox, when he talked about something called the estivation hypothesis, that, uh, that seems really kind of wild, but it says that eventually aliens, when they get post-biological, they would, um, and they set up all their Dyson spheres and everything, they're going to have a, a serious problem with waste heat and that their ideal solution would be to set up all the Dyson spheres and Dyson swarms and everything, harvesting all the energy from all the stars and then go to sleep essentially just to, to wait, uh, to, to wait for a cooler future when the universe cools down a little bit, because then the waste heat won't be such a problem. So, this the problem I see with this is that it kind of assumes that aliens think the way we do, and especially when they get post biological, you would think that what drives humanity currently to expand and be constantly seeking new uh, new information uh, is that we have a limited time to take it in, so we we crave more while we have it, while we can. Get it. I mean, that's the way I am. I want to see all the, the everything in the world because there's only one chance to do it. Right? And if you were going to be around for a billion years, you might have a very different attitude about that. So that seems like I, I'm curious what you think about that uh, hypothesis and any others that I don't know about in, in the, the new is, book. So th th this is a really uh, fast moving field. So th th the second edition 
uh, of Where Is Everybody with yeah, 75 solutions. That was published in, in 2015. And the estivation hypothesis, uh, which is an idea of uh, Anders Sandberg and, and some of his colleagues at Oxford, it was out in preprint just as I was finalising the book. So I mentioned the hypothesis, but pretty much only in passing. Um, th there is actually some debate about whether the physics of that idea stacks up, you know, whether it's worth storing your energy for when the universe cools so that you can do more efficient computing. It, it's, it's not 100% clear that that proposal works, but it does at least demonstrate that people are still thinking um, about this problem. I mean, you mentioned post-biological beings, um, so I cover that. It's, it's very difficult, as you point out, to, to know anything um, about what might happen after the so-called singularity. You know, if a singularity happens, this idea that we create robot brains that are more intelligent than us, that go on to invent intelligences that are more intelligent than themselves and, and they go on and so on. You get this exponential runaway, um, increasing in, in intelligence. What happens after that, um, that singularity? Who knows? But going back to, to more um, mundane um, approaches, in one of the ideas I covered in the second edition is the notion that advanced civilizations, if they wanted to transmit their Encyclopedia Galactica, as Asimov called it, they'd find it energetically favourable to write it down, actually encode it physically uh, in, in a small volume, and then send billions of copies of their Encyclopedia Galactica out into space. They, they'd shield it to guard against cosmic rays and other degradations, and then they'd send it out by probe, a sort of message in a bottle. And a couple of years ago, we saw something that fit the bill. It's called Amuamua, and it's oh. the first visitor from interstellar space to visit the solar system. And when people first saw it, they, they immediately thought of Rendezvous with Rama. Uh, yeah, I sure did. <laughs> now, I, I think Amuamua was a natural object. You know, there's some debate about exactly what it was, maybe a fragment of nitrogen ice. But it does show it's worth looking for these things, you know, the, the, these these proposals. And I, I think one of the really important questions in science is the role that biology plays in the universe. You know, what what sort of universe do we live in? Is Earth the only planet in the galaxy that gave rise to life? Is primitive life common but complex life rare? Or are there other intelligences out there? And if there are, have they become this sort of post-biological um, species in some way? Mm. And the really interesting thing for me is that we will soon have some incredible new observatories that will help us in that search to finding answers. So we've got the James Webb Sp Space Telescope. It's going to be launched soon. We've got the Vera Rubin Observatory. You know, these are really exciting times in science. Oh, I'm just praying that James Webb gets out there and gets set up right, and they get it going and next summer or so. We're going to see oh, some things. Yeah. Everything crossed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, before I ask my last question, uh, no Asimovian pun intended, I swear. I just want to say that if... Um, 
Oh, Moa Moa was a message in a bottle. It's a crying shame we weren't ready to intercept it. Um, in just another few decades, maybe we would have had a way to intercept it and figure out what it was. Uh, so I hope that wasn't like a once in a million years kind of uh, opportunity we just missed by just barely. Um, so anyway, uh, the last question, what are you working on now? Uh, right now, so um, I'm, I'm finalizing a project, a uh, lockdown project, when I started at the, the, the start of lockdown, um, and it's a bit of a departure for me. It, it's a, a book called Around the World in 80 Ways, um, and it's essentially a collection of 80 world maps that illustrate some topic of interest. Uh, well, a, a topic I found interesting anyway, and, and one that I could find data about to create the map. So it's a set of maps along with a, a one or two page commentary. So, so that's been fun. And I had another lockdown project that I put on hold. And it's an, an exploration of the year 1956. Um, what happened in the real world along with what happened in, in science fiction. Because this was, I, I think, my opinion, one of the best years in the history of science fiction. So we had Asimov and Heinlein and Clark all producing great work. The science fiction magazines were still strong. There were some terrific movies, you know, Forbidden Planet, my favourite, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the others. So I thought it would be fun to explore you know, that time, which looking back seems an entirely different world. And I'd put the idea on hold, but you know, listening to your podcast has reawakened that urge to look at some classic science fiction. So that, that's going to be the next project for me. Oh, that sounds like a great project. Well, I, the maps one looks really interesting to me too, because I love maps. And I, I, so I'll be taking a look at both of those. And now I know you have uh, nine other books you, you've written. So I assume some of those are not for general audience. Is that right? Um, my, my first one, probably not. Um, that was a, an astronomy textbook on, on the cosmological distance ladder, um, basically about distance determination. In, in astronomy, but other, other than that, um, I, I think most people would um, be able to to get something from from some of those books. Great, I'm going to be looking that up and seeing what else you've got because I've really enjoyed reading um, the first edition of the um, Where Is Everybody. It's, I really like your writing style; very clear, and um, I guess uh, you've inherited some of that from from your favorite author. Well, I, I, I've, I've tried. I've tried. Um, it, it's a hard act to follow, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it sure is. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that I, I don't write too much like Asimov after um, reading so much of him lately. But I, I think I have some faith that I'm not going to get anywhere close to him, so I'll have my own style. But anyway, I think we're, we're out of time, and it's been uh, a blast having you on the podcast. And I wish you well in all your future projects and in everything you do. Um, thank you very much for offering your perspective on Foundation and Asimov, and as well as the amazing concepts that he and other writers have presented. And uh, that's going to be all, I think. So, Well, it's you. been fun. Joel, I really enjoyed it. And, and, and thank you for having me on your podcast. All right. Well, to all our listeners out there, we still have one more special episode coming before we get into session three, season three of Selden Crisis. 
Next up is another guest episode, two in a row, with a different perspective on foundation. I'll be speaking with TCA Akintia, a historian who studies the British Empire and happens to be another huge fan of Asimov and Foundation. Uh, we'll be getting into some of his insights into the story and its genesis in Asimov's passion for history. Happy holidays to everybody and see you soon for History and Foundation here on Selden Crisis.